Hi, guys, and welcome to Breaking Down the Podcast Season 2, Episode 5, 4. I don't know, and it doesn't matter. Um, we are so happy to have you guys listening and supporting. You make our life complete, and we can't thank you enough. Um, I'm Edie. And this is Mia. And today we have a super exciting special guest who Mia will introduce. This is Jay Wick, licensed marriage and family therapist. I was so, so blessed to meet Jay last year at a marketing event, and we sat next to each other, and I couldn't even believe, like, oh man, you even have an El Nopolito like dough pad on right now. That's like my favorite chip and salsa. <laughs> my um, friend owns it. No <laughs> way. Yeah. I'll hook you That's up. like my fave. Um, so we met and I was just like, oh man, this is what I need. Just like the realist clinician to be able to talk to. And he like works not far from me. So um, Jay Wick is a licensed, licensed merit cut. Jay Wick is an LMFT and he specializes in couples work, specifically emotional. Holy, f- what is wrong with me? <laughs> I kind of want to keep that in. <laughs> specifically, emotionally focused therapy and addiction. And I'm told that he works with a lot of teens now too. And he is just amazing and mind blowing. And anybody would be lucky to work with him. So, Jay, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for asking me to be on. And thanks for the warm introduction. That was like the first impression that I got from you when we met, when we sat next to each other. I was just like, I need to spend more time around this person. <laughs> it's just like the most validating, warmest person ever. Like, I, I want to hang out more with you. Thank you. He is rad. Yeah. Thank you. We also have a special guest of my dog freaking out in his crate. So if you hear squeaks <laughs> and metal rustling, that's him. Just saying hi, you know, he's not super emotionally regulated and that's okay. Hi, Bacon. Um, So Jay, I thought it would be really, really great if people could get a background on a little bit of your recovery story, because I know that that probably directly correlates with some of the work that you do now. And so it'd be awesome to just hear a little bit about your life starting out with that. So I was born in night (laughs) now. I guess to kind of give you the the synopsis, um, I've been in recovery for a little over nine years, um, and my recovery has kind of morphed into different things as I've kind of progressed through it. But um, in 2010, I was like at the end of my rope. I was basically, um, I mean, I was having like a brief psychotic episode. I was hallucinating. I was, I thought that my dad had put like a video recording device in, uh, our DVR box. And so I was like, like, I just remember knowing that it wasn't really happening, but also thinking like, I was like seeing these things and feeling like it was happening. Um, and I had worked, I I had basically been drinking at that point from the moment I woke up at like seven o'clock in the morning until the moment I passed out. Um, and then I was abusing a lot of other substances. But the, the main thing is primarily it progressed into any time that I was awake, I was putting alcohol into my system. Um, and so on that last day, I had like gone out. I had been trying to stop. I knew how bad it was. I was like violently shaking anytime that alcohol wouldn't be in me. Um, and I was working at a restaurant bar at the time. So I like went and I worked my last shift 
And I mean, I was like, I was drinking like margarita glasses full of vodka just to kind of like stay functioning. I remember like looking at one of my friends when I took a shot in front of him and he just had this wide eyed expression, like what the fuck is going on? Um, and then I went, I told the manager, I'm an alcoholic. I need to go to the hospital. I'm dying. I drove, I called my dad. I drove home, told my dad, like, I need you to wait for me. And I walked into the house and was just like, I think I'm dying and I need to go to the emergency room right now. Um, and I was like, you know, if this isn't abundant, I was living with my parents at the time. So I was like, if this isn't abundantly obvious to you, I'm an alcoholic. I have an extreme problem. And he was kind of like trying to minimize it. Anyway, went, drove myself to the emergency room. I was like in this weird manic state where I was like calling all my friends, like, guess where I'm going? I'm finally doing it. Like I'm going to the hospital. And my, one of my buddies still to this day was like, it was the happiest I'd heard you in a really long time. Um, and then... I went to emergency room, stayed there for probably 12 to 14 hours. Um, then I went straight into a detox and then straight into a residential program. Um, I'm, I was just thinking, I was like, the, the emergency room stuck me with a nice like $15,000 bill for a 12-hour stay. Um, so then, I mean, the, the rest is kind of progression after that, right? Like I went to treatment. I learned some stuff. It was basically kind of like 12 step. You do your first three steps before you leave. You learn a little bit of foundation, but then they were like, you need to go to outpatient and do all that. And I um, couldn't afford to go to outpatient and my insurance wouldn't pay for, I think my parents had to like cancel a trip. They finally saved up to go to like Cancun on a trip and they canceled their trip, got half their money refunded and then paid cash for me to go have this like one shot at treatment. Um, so I kind of was just like, I'm going to throw myself fully into AA. I'm going to do what I need to do. I actually moved into a little studio down, um, off Ivy street down here, downtown. Um, and everybody was like, that's a horrible idea. Like you're going to be alone and you're going to relapse. I just knew that I was done. Um, and so, I mean, as far as like the recovery piece that kind of started and then, you know, the last nine years, it's been like a bunch more. I had, I had just got accepted to go back to school, right? Like the day that I went to treatment. Um, so, and I remember like getting a pass cause they let, they were super scared to let me go, but I needed to leave to go fill out my FAFSA and get all that in. And they were like, you're not going to come back. Like I was like on day 15, I'm like, I need to fill this out so I can go to school. Um, and then, so I went back in rehab, I remember like watching, I was a business major at the time and I was super miserable. And then in rehab, I remember just sitting in the groups and watching people like, like light come on, you know, behind their eyes again and like see personality of like these people that were like zombies. And I really loved the process. So I kind of thought maybe I'll switch my major to something counseling related. And so I had, I talked to a friend and she said, you know, you can do human development at Cal State San Marcos and they have um, a counseling emphasis. And so I did that. And then like, I had no intent. I didn't know what an MFT was. I didn't know the difference between like a social worker and a therapist, you know, like, or, a, a you know, MFT. Um, but as I just kind of progressed along this thing, the dots kind of just kept connecting. And I ended up, I worked at a place down the street here in, um, called San Diego Youth Services. And so I did, before I even finished my bachelor's, I was, I was working there doing work with like the kids and, um, it's like a lot of homeless and runaway youth. And so 
all of them were pushing me like, you're a therapist. And like the, the social workers were like, you're a social worker. And I was just kind of like, I literally picked MFT. I applied to one program. I was just, it was like, if I get into this program, I'm meant to be a therapist. If I don't get in, I'll figure out what the hell I'm supposed to do with my life. And I got in and now, you know, the dominoes have kind of fallen and this is where I'm at right now. So. <laughs> That's a pretty incredible story. There was, there's a lot of, uh, the narrative that I didn't weave in there, but. Yeah. I mean, it's never a straight path. I mean, right. I think even when you're not battling something like addiction or alcoholism or mental health issues, which I would say like 90% of therapists have something going on. Right. I would actually say a hundred percent, but right. There's not, it's never an easy path, but it just, those confounding variables just make it that much more challenging, especially when you have to hold space for others who might be facing the same thing that you've been going through and being able to like correctly hold that boundary and not get triggered every day and not get run down. It's, right. it's a ton of work. And I don't think that's talked about a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I think like I, I did a lot of personal work and, you know, I went on my own since I was in these counseling classes, I was basically like going and doing like CBT on myself and all these things. I used to go meditate in the park, like in the middle of the park purposely, because my own judgments about like when I used to see people like that, I'd be like, what's this weirdo doing, you know? And I had so many social phobias and so much, you know, shame and fear of judgment of others and all these things that I, I would like go do little exposure things on myself where I would like sit in the park and like keep my eyes closed and try to meditate. And in the beginning, it was just kind of like every time I heard footsteps, I'd be like, oh God, they're looking at me, you know? And then eventually I could just like relax into it. And so, I mean, that was... It was probably between the time I went to treatment and the time that I, you know, graduated my master's program was, God, I would say five, six years, more than that, maybe. And then, so I've been doing a ton of work, but then my first job right out of uh, grad school was working in a treatment center. And so it was kind of like, I thought I was pretty good, but then there's like a lot of triggering stuff. And there's like a lot, of, you're like listening to people's stories all day and I've never done heroin or anything, but I'm listening to people's stories. And like, there's a piece of me that's like, heroin sounds kind of nice. Like, <laughs> you know, like it's not something I'd ever really want to do, but I, mm, checking out sounds pretty good right now. Then you just kind of have to like process and keep accountable. So I admire so much that you had done that amount of work on yourself prior to the program. Cause, um, I really didn't even get started on doing my own work until I was forced to in grad school, like go to therapy for two years kind of thing. And so I'm always just like a little envious of people that got such a head start or went as teens. My, my family didn't think I needed it, you know, so it's right. just like, man, to go in it with that level of self-awareness must have been, I think, probably so helpful for your clients too. There was just kind of like a, there was a, so I haven't been to AA in probably eight and a half years, something like that. I took my year chip and then I just kind of figured I got what I learned from it and walked away. But there was a, uh, there's some quote in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that says something like clinging to the program, like a drowning person would to a life preserver. And so I think I took that as like all of these things that cause me anxiety or that bring me down, that cause me to kind of, um, like, you know, these, these feelings of defeat that immobilize me, all of this stuff, like I need to figure this stuff out because that's the stuff that's going to continue to like make me triggered and want to go back to using substances. So 
it was kind of like a four, like I hit the ground running. It was like, I got to figure this out because I am crawling out of my skin and I know I don't want to go back, but like the temptation's pretty real when every moment of the day is just like so uncomfortable, you know? So it was kind of, you know. Well, yeah, you were numbed out for so right. many years. You then had to start to feel it. And I'm sure that was frightening. Yeah. That's like the scariest part when you're just like, I don't have my one thing that like makes me feel the most comfortable. And now I'm just like, you're like an exposed nerve to mm. just like everything. Totally. Yeah. And I remember when I was working in a program that did dual diagnosis, one of the head people who was, you know, in 20 years of recovery said, you know, something that was so powerful to me that was, you know, people don't use alcohol or substances just for fun. They use them because they work and then they stop working. Right. And so the fact that like giving that validation of like, yeah, there was a reason that you were numbing yourself out. There was a reason that you were using alcohol to that extreme way or whatever the substance is that someone's playing with or eating disorders, right? Because it works. It makes you feel better. But then ultimately there's consequences and we yeah. need to figure out kind of healthier or more adaptive coping skills. Yeah. I say like it's the solution to the problem and then it becomes the problem, right. you know, like this thing is toxic and it's killing me, but it was working really well for a while. I'd say kind of what you just said, I, when I work with parents of people that are struggling or like loved ones, I, I kind of try to reframe it a lot of times to say like, it's not like they're using or drinking or whatever at this point, right? Like in the beginning, it's fun. Like, I'm not going to lie. Drugs are fun. Alcohol is fun. Like it can be right. But like it, at the later stages, you're miserable and scared and putting on a front every single day to try to make it look like you don't have this extreme problem, you know? So it's like, this person's continuing to use not because they're just like enjoying it so much. And they're like, they, they're using to not feel bad every day, you know? which is a big reframe difference to just like a parent or a, or a spouse that's like, oh, you're just, you know, using and just having a blast getting high. And it's like- Like demonizing the person. Or yeah, like I wake up every day with crippling anxiety and this is the medicine I take to start the day. And unfortunately, it causes a lot of other problems, you know, but- Man, those teens are really lucky to have you just to be able to explain that to parents. And I know it's not just teens you work with, but just to have that perspective rather than, you know, I think a lot of people have the more blaming attacking because they don't understand. Right. It's with any kind of like maladaptive coping mechanism, you know, where like you said, like eating disorders or whatever, like it's a thing that's self-soothing. It's doing something, but everybody has these stigmas and these judgments of it. And it's even cutting, like, it serves a purpose, you know, and it's really hard to get people to see other than it's just this horrific, dangerous thing, but it's like, there's something underneath it that's leading to that. And this is the thing that they've found that helps, you know? So. How did you decide that you wanted to kind of specialize in addiction? Is it because of the lights that you saw behind people's eyes, like you were talking about, or did it just kind of like, that was the path that you always thought? No, I actually, well, when I was in treatment and decided to switch my major, it was just kind of like, I know I don't want to go back to business. I used to like sleep in the library. I'd go, I was at San Diego State. I would just go to school, sleep in the library, show up, take the tests. Like I was passing with C's, but I was just miserable. Um, so I thought at least if I'm going back to school, I'm going to pursue something that might be interesting to me. And then like, I didn't, at that point, you know, six months into recovery, 
I didn't really think that my life was going to amount to much or do anything. You know, I was just like, maybe I can find a job doing some counseling somewhere, maybe, but there wasn't any conviction behind like anything bigger is going to come. It was just like, I'm going to finish school and then maybe like I'll do something. And I was working at Trader Joe's at the time, which I still to this day tell people was like the best job I ever had. I've heard that from so many people. <laughs> I, I love, like I tell when I'm working with people like newly in recovery, I'm like, go get a job at Trader Joe's. It, the people are like the happiest people. You're active. Like, I don't know. It was great. But it's I, like a I, community. Yeah. I loved it. I was actually going to stay there. And then it's, I was trying to go like on a management track. Um, and I ended up getting the job at San Diego Youth Services. And so kind of just like steered the ship that way towards counseling. So when, when I, even when I was in grad school, I was like, I don't want to work in addiction. I want to do the anxiety and the depression and all the other stuff that I think leads to some of that stuff. But like, I specifically was like, I don't want to work in addiction. And I, I've done some processing of some of that stuff. And I think like I had a, I had like a defensive kind of stance against it maybe, or like, I didn't want to be like, there's a lot of people that go through recovery and then they end up working in the treatment industry. And, and, and for some reason, I think maybe I had a judgment of that, or I was just kind of like, I'm going to be like a, a norm quote unquote, normal there, you know? <laughs> and then my first job out of grad school was at a treatment center with a buddy, my buddy that owned it. I met nine years prior or whatever in uh, rehab. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so it was like this like synchronicity of all these things that were happening. It was just kind of like following the breadcrumbs. Yeah. And I think that it's, it can be such as Neo kind of was saying, it's such like a valuable asset to be able to, when someone's like in the depths of their addiction or their struggle or whatever is to be able to see someone come out on the other side and actually have a life worth living. Cause a lot of times I feel like, you know, especially with addiction, like there is this huge stigma that you were talking about and this idea that you're never going to amount to anything. Like you might be sober, but you're not living a life that's like enjoyable or anything. Like you can't have successes because of all of the terrible things that have gone on because of the addiction, but to be able to have a role model and a really healthy role model is so important. And also, unfortunately, I think pretty rare. I've, I've, you know, I have my own kind of stuff with the addiction world here. It's kind of like the wild, wild west. Like there's no rules uh, um, yeah. and it's very scary. But to be able to like, you know, there are, I want people out there to know like there are people like Jay that have done the work and can show up in a way that's really healthy and helpful. Hmm. Yeah, I think like that's the thing. Accountability and being willing to do the work. And then, you know, I, I it's, AA has the big emphasis on the higher power piece. And I've never... Not a religious person. I don't necessarily believe in God, but I think what I did find through a lot of this stuff is faith that, like, like this un unwavering belief in the unknown, right? That, like, if I keep moving forward into something, something's going to come of it. And so I think there's kind of a catch 22 also of where I'm at and what I've accomplished in recovery or just in my life in general is that, like, when I tell people, like, you can do this too, you know what I mean? People have a tendency to be like, no. That's, and I've asked specific clients too, like, do you think that you can ever do anything with your life or are you going to, and they're like, no, it's rare that you did. It's not a possibility for me. And so that's kind of a hard space to, to be kind of helping develop that belief too, that like your thoughts are limiting you. You know, if you go into this with this belief that you're not going to amount to anything, you're not going to amount to it. You know what I mean? You have, what's going to keep you moving forward and driving forward if every day you just feel like, well, what's the point? Like there's no purpose in any of this, you know, that's that blind. I just, 
we were talking about the Brene Brown special right before this, and there was a quote, or maybe I read it in her book, but I like absolutely love the quote and said, only when we venture into the darkness, do we see the infinite power of our light. And it's just like that, like you have to go to the scary place and keep going towards it. But that's the only way that you're going to find out that it's going to turn into something beautiful, you know, but everybody's just like scared. Nope. Uncomfortable. Nope. I'll run back to what I know. And then it's just kind of that hamster wheel of recovery that you see. That was yeah. such a beautiful quote. I know. I love that. Yeah. Do you find that, because I mean, your your specialization, you know, with, I would say probably more the DBT than the RO DBT with that kind of like crisis mentality and that, you know, limited pain tolerance and that impulsivity. Do you find that like that type of message is found there too, where it's like this fear of actually allowing the emotions because they're so intense Oh, God, yes, especially when it comes to, like, <clears throat> I mean, a lot of behaviors, but, you know, specifically if somebody's been, like, self-harming, I think that's what you're maybe asking is, like, to actually think about walking away from these behaviors that have been so helpful for so long. Um, yeah, there's – I've seen huge fear and just, like, so much doubt in people that they feel like if I walk away from that, I'm, I'm not going to have any way of, like – just functioning, I guess. Hopefully that's what you're sort of asking me. So yeah. But then you, a lot of times I'll see just this crazy shift with, with the motivated folks that really actually start to will willingly and like just really willingly push themselves to be skillful, even if it's like incredibly uncomfortable, which I think can be. And I use the skills too. Um, but when you see them really exhaustively use them, that's where I start to see the shift happen. And they realize that like, oh, okay, I don't have to rely on this and I can actually be like a really happy person without it. It's it's pretty amazing. Therapy works, guys. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's like the scariest part of like any change is like it's going to be uncomfortable mm -hmm. for a while. And you have to have that faith or that belief that like I'm going to – it's the sacrifice of like, okay, I'm willing to be uncomfortable for a little bit because I know that it has the potential to get better. But if you don't believe that it has any potential to get better, then you're going to go back the other way. Mm -hmm. So you like venture out a little bit into the darkness and you're like, oh God, it's too scary. It's too dark. I'm going back. Mm -hmm. And then maybe you get a little further the next time. And so that, I mean, it's, there's nothing wrong with like repeated attempts, you know, but it's that you have to be able to slowly build that distress tolerance and the only way to do it is to kind of like continue to feel it and yeah. then like work through some things and be like okay that worked I didn't die like I went through I used to that was like another thing that I when I I was like finding that my world was getting smaller and smaller because when I was living in little Italy all my friends were like going all my friends lived down here or like my close good friends that were like the type of friends that will hold me accountable and not let me party with them but also like we're going day drinking and like you can come if you want to, but you know, so I'm like, all right, well, I guess I'm going to go like sit in Balboa park by myself or whatever. But I started realizing that like, I'm getting closed off from people and from the world. So then I put myself on match.com <laughs> and it was just like, I, I mean, I wanted to meet people, but it was also primarily because my own fears of judgment and stigma around what is a person what is a potential partner going to think about me having gone to rehab and, and not drinking anymore and being an alcoholic and whatever. Right. So like having to go sit through my own cognitions that are like, 
they are going to run out the door as soon as they see you, or as soon as you say that you don't drink anymore because you had a problem, I'm going to go challenge that. And then I would like sit there and be like the first question, you know, like, don't you want to get something to drink? I'd be like, I don't drink anymore. Oh, why did you have a problem? I mean, that's like the first thing everybody, are you Mormon? Did you have a problem? You know, like there's no, like, it's a healthy choice for my life. And I don't, you know, talk about exposure. Yeah. You just sound like you really put yourself through the mill of all these exposures and yet benefited so much at the other end. I mean, that's what I'm sure a lot of pain and yeah. Dude, my my pits would be like profusely sweating when I'd go on these dates. Like I would just be so uncomfortable and be like, run my brain's like run away, run away, run away. And I'd be like, No, you're not gonna die. And then I'd get to the other side and like shockingly people would be like wanting a second date or something, you know, and I'm, and everything in my brain told me that that's not a possibility. So then it's like slowly changing the narrative over time too, you know? And then and now even I still have that fear. It's just part of me or whatever. When I go do, I have a photography business and like there's a lot of times when I go do photo shoots where I still am like, run away, run away. You know what I mean? And like, I just know enough now to be like, that's how your brain works and nothing's going to happen to you. So you don't need to numb out. You don't need to run away. Just feel the feelings. Oh man. It's so true. And I think that like I encounter this all the time with my population, which is majority eating disorder or disordered eating body image of just this, like, there's so much disconnect from the body that goes on when, you know, you're going through something like malnourishment or binging and purging or whatever the behavior may be. And people think that they're very connected to their bodies because they're body checking, but it's actually a total dissociation that goes on. And so when we start to heal that, we start to cut back on the behaviors and they're like, oh my God, this anxiety is literally going to kill me. You have to like do that reframe and do that education around the fact that like it is so uncomfortable, but no one has ever died from anxiety. No one has ever died from sadness. People die or get harm from the actions they take to avoid those feelings. And it's a lot. And I know for me, like I hate feeling anxious and I will do a lot of things to avoid it. But when I actually allow for it and sit in it, it passes so much quicker. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, why didn't I just start running away? Yeah, why didn't I just like sit and let it happen and not try and fix it? Because right. emotions don't need to be fixed. It's just, cra- it's like neurobiologically or what, like that's your how, how our brains are wired. Like th- there's a threat. I'm feeling something. And then your brain's like, get away from the threat. And then you go do some impulsive thing that causes more problems down the road yeah. than it would have been if you were just to be like, there is no threat. I'm uncomfortable, but that's okay. You know, and you just kind of sit with it. I see more through working through treatment and working in my own practice now, like, and even just in my own life, it's like, we're like cruising down the stream of life and like, everything's fine, you know? And then we like butt up against something that seems fearful or threatening and we go, Oh God, like jump out of the stream and like (laughs) run this way. And then you like run off a cliff and you know, it's like, Dude, the stream would have just carried you past that and everything would have been all right, but we want to run away. Right. Yeah. Well, you talked a little bit about like dating and all of that. And so it just kind of made me think of a question about how you fell in love with doing couples work. And I guess, I mean, I I know we don't have a ton of time, but just like a little bit about emotionally focused therapy, just because I think it's brilliant and amazing. And there's probably not a ton of people trained in that here in San Diego, so... I think there's like a huge, there's actually a huge EFT, um, Dr. Rebecca Jorgensen. She, I think she runs, I'm not quite sure, but the, at Alliant University, they have like a big EFT program. And then there's, 
Um, the San Diego Center for EFT, I think. I, I just got asked to be part of the board of EFT. Um, so I'm going to like help run their social media or something. I haven't had my first initial meeting yet, but um, it's pretty exciting to mm-hmm. kind of be involved in the community of that. So maybe it's a bigger community than I thought. Yeah, I mean, okay. I think it's it's not huge like other, you know, modalities, but... I mean, you think of like Gottman and EFT, like everybody and their mother knows who Gottman is. And and then when I try to explain EFT and attachment to people, they're just kind of like, what? You know? Um, so as far as how I fell in love with it, I, I, I don't know. I think the, the, like, the really like cool answer would be, I'm just like a hopeless romantic <laughs> at heart. And like, I love just seeing people connect and, they think that they're broken and they're at all this distress in their relationship. And then you kind of tweak a couple things and, um, they find connection again. Um, but also in my first semester in practicum in grad school, our whole program was narrative based. Um, and I had one practicum leader that was like pushing back against the narrative and she was very EFT. And so I, I really got to get a little grasp of it and try it. And then I got to work with a couple, like my, my first couple, my first client ever in practicum, like doing the work inside that little, we were, we had the, you know, the one way mirror action or the two way mirror or whatever. Um, and I got to actually see them have this really, really distressed marriage that almost had an affair and then come back to being like close and connected and affectionate and all these other things. And it just really, moved me. I don't know. I really loved it. So I'm like the, like if I have a choice of like what movies I want to watch, I'm going to watch like Serendipity with John Cusack. And <laughs> like, that that's like my favorite movie. Yeah, it's so, <laughs> so good. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's where I'm at with the couple stuff. Yeah. Do you think that there is, you can utilize EFT? I'm sure the answer is probably yes, but for those who like are not therapists and this is kind of like language, but like with, when there is, you know, distrust or dysregulation in a relationship due to addiction, do you think EFT is a good solution for that? Would you recommend something else? No, I think that that's like, I was doing work in the treatment center where the primary focus is, is substance use, you know, the addiction, whatever, but I would just do straight EFT sessions, couple sessions with them and not even focus on the, addiction necessarily. And you'd slowly start to see things heal because there's so much, I mean, in the attachment dance that people play into, it's like all of this mistrust and betrayal and all of these things that are happening. And EFT, um, kind of speaks to the heart of that. And so it's not, it's not like learning skills and like, like I've had people, you know, they're like, our last therapist told us to take 10 deep breaths and walk away. And I'm like, Oh really? Cause when you're attached, what, what does your attachment system do when you walk away from your partner who's anxiously attached? Like they freak out and then you start arguing more, you know? So when you can address the bond at the core and you make a safe space, right? Where the partners aren't being reactive and they're like, they're coming from this critical place where they're blaming the addiction or they're blaming the person, but they're actually able to know the dance that they're stuck in and then speak to it in different, more vulnerable language then it helps because because otherwise, especially in terms of addiction, if this person continues to be distressed within the relationship that they're in, what are they going to do? Go to the thing that soothes them when they're distressed. And then it's going to create more of a cycle of, see, this is what you do. You always use, you let me down, you blah, blah, blah. 
But if you help them understand why they're doing what they're doing and where the defensiveness and the criticism and all that stuff comes from, I think it opens up different, safer dialogues, you know? And then a person can actually feel like emotionally focused therapy too is all about using your partner. Your partner is like the, one of the greatest sources or can be of helping you regulate your nervous system. So if you're able to turn to a safe partner and the partner is able to be validating and supportive and all of that, it soothes you. It brings you down and calms you. And you don't have to go look for the other thing that soothed you. But if you're constantly distressed, like, you know, you're, you're going to look for, like we just talked about, about the, like, instead of sitting in the feelings, you're just going to run away and go do some impulsive thing that causes more problems and then more distress in your relationship. Beautifully described Dude, and said. You're brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> Where can people find you? Uh, I have a website that is comingintofocus.org, all one word. Um, I'm going to try to change it soon, hopefully. But And then I have an Instagram that's the same. Um, it's all one word, coming into focus. My practice is called focus therapy, um, which is kind of misleading because I think people think it's like a type of therapy or something, but it's just like a play on words from my love of photography. And and I like the idea of like, there was a point in my life when things came into focus and like I was motivated to move a new direction and do what it, ta- what it needed to be done to do that, right? And so, um, and then on my website, I have a blog where I have stuff about you know, addiction and delayed gratification. I post some stuff that was just like really helpful things for me when I was trying to go through recovery, like watching Brene Brown videos or things like that. So, um, yeah, that's it. That's awesome. And do you only see people, um, local to your Encinitas? Yeah. Do you do any Skype or long distance for people in California? Um, I would, I'm actually doing a Skype session later today. So I do sessions, um, but I haven't really had much of the opportunity. Like, I guess my base is just local referrals right now. So right now I'm in my office on Fridays and Saturdays and I just pack it in and get, um, those days full as I can. And hopefully I can expand onto more days as I grow. Thank you so much for sharing and your vulnerability and your incredible knowledge on this topic. We really appreciate it. I know our listeners do too. Um, If you guys have any feedback, questions, concerns, just want to say hi, you can find us at Breaking Down the Podcast, at Edie Stark Therapy, and at Mia Swag with three Gs. We love to hear from you. Um, Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, and we'll see you next time. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.